This morning, church, we do conclude, finally, our series, The Christmas Story of Redemption. And in this series, each week, we've been looking briefly at Jesus' first coming at Christmas, but we've been primarily talking about the overarching story of the Bible, of our universe, which is often called the story of redemption. And thus far, we have seen most of the story. We saw how God created this world and us. We saw how in history then the world fell. And then for three messages, we saw how God always had a plan to redeem his people and this universe. And that started with redemption being foreshadowed in the story of the people of Israel. Then we saw redemption promised with God's two overarching promises that he'd come as savior and king. And then finally, a couple nights ago on Christmas Eve, we saw redemption accomplished as Jesus, our God, came to save his people from their sins. And he did it. And he did it by dying on the cross, by rising, and now he does reign as that Savior and King. But that then all finally leads us to this concluding week. And so if the storyline of the Bible, as we've been saying, is creation, fall, redemption, and restoration... Now this week we're on to restoration. And as for our outline, we'll simply have two sections this morning. Two sections. And that's because if we think about God's restoration after accomplishing redemption, there's two main things we should keep in mind. And these will be our two sections. First, God's restoration is about him restoring us, his people, little by little now. And then second, God's restoration, and biggest of all, is about him one day restoring his people in this universe completely in the future. So those will be our two sections. And some, first, God's restoration now, and second, God's restoration to come in the future. And we'll go to one main place in the Bible for each. And as a quick side note, though, as, as we do start off this message, even finish this series, my hope and my prayer for all of us as we go through this this morning is that this may especially be encouraging, that you may be encouraged. Because personally, I don't know about you, but for me, this truth of restoration, that God is really doing in us now he's doing that, and one day he's going to do it unfathomably in the future, is one of the main things that gives me encouragement and hope and joy when life does get hard, confusing, and tough. And it is supposed to do that for us as God's people. Because right now, we're only sojourners here, right? We're not home yet. But God is changing us little by little, and one day we will be home. And so really, my prayer for all of us this morning as we go through this together is that we will have our eyes, if you will, lifted a little bit above everything that's going on, and we may see together the stunning restoration of our God. But with that said, let's begin our first section on God's restoration now. And for this, we'll be in the passage that was read from Titus chapter 2. And so here in Titus 2, we'll see restoration, what it looks like now. And since this is still the Christmas story of redemption, it's here that we'll also see Jesus' first coming at Christmas talked about. But what we'll do is we're going to read through this paragraph now, and then we'll come back, and we're going to notice three things about restoration now in this text. So look down at your Bibles again, Titus 2, 11 through 14. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous 
for good works. So three things about restoration now. First, notice again verse 11 and then verse 14. The first and last verses. In verse 11, it talks about Jesus' appearing. His coming. Which included in history is coming at Christmas. Because the Bible says there the grace of God has appeared. Past tense. And then verse 14, we see that when the grace of God came, what did Jesus do? Well, he, quote, gave himself for us to redeem us. And we could spend a long time on that, but that's really the first thing we see here about restoration now. And, and we can call it the foundation for restoration now. And that foundation, as we know from the storyline of the Bible, is Jesus' coming at Christmas and living a perfect life and going to the cross and rising again and thus accomplishing that redemption. And the quick point for us is that if that redemption did not happen, there wouldn't be any restoration. But that then leads to the second and main thing concerning restoration now. And this is what we see in the majority of that paragraph. Because as you might have noticed, that paragraph is mainly about what redemption does within us now. Because notice verse 12. So the grace of God has appeared in verse 11, but then what does it do in verse 12? Quote, training us. It trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. And the same goes for when Paul brings up redemption in verse 14. What does redemption do in verse 14? Jesus gave himself to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify us, to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. And so as you can see, in both instances, this redemption doesn't just save us, although, amen, of course it does, if we trust in Jesus, but part of God's purposes in that redemption was always to save people and then so change people by his grace from the inside out that they now start to live differently. And not just differently, but really the point is so that we start living now in accord with how we were always meant to live. To not be, as verse 12 says, ungodly, but to live godly lives. Which makes sense, because now think of our story. Remember Genesis 1. We were made in the image of God to reflect and show forth God. And so when we see words in the Bible like ungodliness and then starting to live godly, it's no random just moral idea. Instead, we're talking about the original grand purpose of humanity. And the same really goes for all morality in the New Testament and in this paragraph. For example, renouncing worldly passions is not about just stopping sinning. That's true, but it's about not living for those sinful, fallen desires that entered in all the way back at Genesis 3. And then living in line with our original purpose is especially true at the ending there of verse 14, where as God's people and as humanity, we weren't just made to avoid negatives like ungodliness. Instead, we were made mainly to live positive lives of love and good works. And so the point is, we've been redeemed, but we're also now being restored. Now, of course, as we know, this happens step by step. Or as Paul says elsewhere, quote, and we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. 
And we can call that sanctification, being, called, being made more holy. We can call it living more like Jesus. We can call it God working in our lives. But when we're talking about the overarching story of the universe and of the Bible, we can call it being restored now. Because again, the point is Jesus has redeemed us and he's saved us, yes, but he's done that also so that we can start looking more and more like we were made to live like himself. And so it's an application just for us. Our goal then is to live lives of less sin and more love, all because this is God's purpose for us, to redeem us and to restore us for his glory, for our good, and for the good of the world. And, and one other thing on this, to be clear, this also means that for us as a church then, as a church, the reason why God and his plan has the church is that who we therefore are as an assembly is those who are not only redeemed, but those who by God's grace are also now being restored. And this then is another reason why the church and really being part of a church and even church membership is such a big deal because God isn't just doing this restoration thing for individual scattered people. Instead, he has planned for his individuals who are redeemed and who are being restored to gather in assemblies, which then, if you think about it, become restoring communities in the midst of this fallen world. And that really is what this is, redeemed and being restored. And that's why our unity and our peace and our love as a church is so important. Because it really shows forth the reality of God's restoration, not only individually, but corporately as a community. But that then brings us to the third and final thing about restoration now in this passage. So we've seen the foundation, we've seen what it looks like for God to change us. But third and finally, part of restoration now is seen in verse 13. Because as we'll see in a second, God's people are not only saved, and not only living now differently and changed, but also... While this is happening, God's people, we now are so waiting and longing for the day when Jesus comes back. That's what we see in verse 13. Let's look down. Verse 13. Waiting for our blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So real quick, notice there what Jesus is called. <laughs> Because one of the clearest descriptions of his deity in the whole Bible. So the grace of God has appeared in verse 11, meaning Jesus has come. And then in verse 13, he will appear again. But who is he? Quote, our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so that's what we're waiting for. That's who we're waiting for. And it's part of our redemption and our restoration now. Or to say it most simply, restoration now produces within God's people a longing for restoration in the future, which we're going to be talking about in our second section. It's a longing for the day when this great redeeming God of ours and his name is Jesus Christ appears again. And notice the first time he appeared, he came here bodily, in person. And so assumed here and explicit elsewhere is that the second time he's going to appear, he's also going to come here bodily, in person, and then everything will finally and forever be changed. And that's our blessed hope. Or even a better translation, maybe our happy hope, as Paul says in verse 13. And remember, the word hope, just so you know, in the Bible, in the original Greek, doesn't ever have this idea of believing something with uncertainty, like we might use in English. Like, I hope 
everything will work out tomorrow. I hope I get a good grade on my test. Instead, hope simply means a future expectation and longing. So that's what's going on here. Our future expectation and longing is the day when our great God and Savior appears again. And he will. So that's restoration now. It's founded on redemption. It's us being changed to sin less bit by bit and love more little by little like we were made to be individually and corporately as churches. And it includes us in all of this longing for that day when restoration finally will come to full fruition. And in talking about then the storyline of the Bible and the story of this universe, this then is where you and I find ourselves right now. Jesus has already appeared once in history. We who trust in him right now have been redeemed. But for now, we're being restored. We're part of church communities, restoring communities. And above all, we are waiting for that final restoration when he comes back and everything's changed forever. Which does lead us perfectly to our second section this morning, which again we will call restoration in the future. And this is the primary part, if you will, of God's restoration because yes, he is changing us now and that really matters. And yes, all this here and now really is for God's glory and for our good and for the good of the world. And yet, the Bible is clear that when we contrast all this to what's to come, it's almost in a sense unfathomably incomparable. (laughs) And I say that because someone like the Apostle Paul who did say, as we just quote, who was so important, it was so, uh, who made it so important about us be tra- being transformed mo- now, and he said, quote, we are to be transformed from one degree of glory to another now. He also said things like, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time aren't worth comparing with the glory to be revealed to us. Romans 8, 18. Or Paul would also say, for this light, light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal way of glory beyond all comparison. And so this here and now matters, our years, our days, our lives, our holiness, our mission, our love as a church and individually, all of it matters. But still, in comparison to what's to come, this is all like a shadow almost. Not because this isn't important, but because what's to come is that much greater, that much more glorious, that much more weighty and permanent. And that's the restoration in the future. And to that, we'll now turn. And for this, we will be in the final two chapters of the Bible, final two chapters of the Bible, Revelation 21 and 22. And so I really do encourage you to turn with me there if you can. Revelation 21 and 22. These should be easier to find since they are literally the last two chapters in your Bible. So Revelation 21 and 22. And we go here because even though this is in Revelation, and so I hope you know this is written in the ancient apocalyptic genre, which means a lot of it is symbolic and a little harder to understand. Still, here in Revelation 21 and 22, I think we get the clearest picture in the Bible of what what's to come looks like. And for this, we'll first and mainly be in Revelation 21 verses 1 through 4. And what we'll do is we're going to read verses 1 through 4, verse by verse. And as we do so, just as we saw three things about restoration now in our last section, so here in these four verses, we'll see three observations about restoration in the future and what it'll look like. like. And we'll start in Revelation 21, 1 and 2. So look down at your Bibles, 21, 1 and 2. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. 
For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. So here we see the first observation, and that's that when all is restored in the future, heaven will come to earth. Heaven will come to earth. And we see that in verse 2, where John sees the holy city, the new Jerusalem, prepared as a bride. And what's it doing? It's coming down. And this means that overall, the first thing about restoration in the future is that heaven will come here. Now, two quick things to note about that. First, I'll admit, and I hope you see, it is a little bit confusing in verse 2. We are in Revelation because sometimes it seems that the church and the new Jerusalem are interchangeable pictures. Meaning the Bible here pictures sometimes the bride as being the heavenly city. And scholars debate exactly what John meant by all that. But what is clear here is that the heavenly city or the heavenly people, or I think really the heavenly city and the heavenly people, the point is clearly that that all is coming here. But that then leads to the second and perhaps a little more debatable point in all this. And we could spend longer on this than we will this morning. But it's what's in verse 1 about all this. Because heaven comes to earth in verse 2, that's clear. But the question is, well, what is this earth at this point? Because verse 1 talks about the heaven and earth passing away and being made new. And this is answered by verse 1 being interpreted in, in two main ways. And as for the first interpretation, which I and I would say honestly most scholars don't hold, it's that people interpret this to be teaching that there will be a 100% new creation created out of nothing, ex nihilo, if you will. Meaning t God will totally get rid of the old earth and heavens and start afresh, like Genesis 1-1 all over again. But the problem with that is it really doesn't fit with a lot of other places in the Bible where it's clear, as you might be thinking now, that God will redeem and rescue the curse from this earth. Nor does it make sense with some of the other pictures in the Bible, this idea of newness, nor, most importantly, does it fit with the Bible's overarching story of redemption, which is about God getting back what fell, not starting all over again. And so I don't think a 100% destroyed and 100% new earth just with God's people is what's being talked about. And I think the main reason, actually, that people think that is because of how this verse sounds in English here, especially with the words new and first and passing away. And so there's another, and I think much better, way to interpret verse 1 here. And that's by seeing that, yes, a radical change is happening here. Really radical. God is making all things new. But this text does not necessarily need to mean that the whole first creation is totally destroyed. And this can be seen by a few things. First, it's helpful to know that in Greek, the word new, kainos, can mean totally new, like out of nothing new, but also in their language can just as easily mean something like really fresh or something renewed. And then secondly, similarly, the idea of the first heaven and the first earth does mean that there's a first that's making a way for a second, but it does not necessarily mean that God totally destroyed everything in the first, like people like you and me. And then third, this idea of passing away does imply that something is really gone, but what is it? Well, we get a hint. You can see it verse 4 at the end when referring to pain and sorrow, John writes, the former things have passed away. And now, of course, more could be said, but I think that shows us that this verse, and the Bible doesn't talk about it 100% destroyed and 100% new earth, but this verse, because it doesn't need to be interpreted this way, nor does the Bible really teach that overall, 
Instead, to follow the storyline of the Bible, it seems here that Revelation 21 really is a earth drastically cleansed and redeemed. And so it's a new, fresh earth and heaven because the first sin-stained fallen earth has now made way for the second renewed, non-cursed new heaven and new earth. But all that said, so that's just a side note. Again, that's the first thing to notice about restoration in the future in these verses. Heaven will come finally here to earth. And before we move on to the second thing, now stepping back for a second, I hope you see that actually this now, at this point in the storyline of the Bible, in the second to last chapter of the Bible, it really makes a ton of sense. Because this heaven coming to earth really is the fulfillment of all of history, of the whole story. Because think all the way back to Genesis at the beginning. In Genesis 1.1, God created the heavens and the earth. And then the creation was, was very good. And not only that, but God, although in a sense more part of heaven than earth, God was still very involved in this earth. He made people in his image on this earth. And then he even walked really closely with Adam and Eve in the garden on this earth. But then when sin happened and sin entered, what happened? Well, if you want to think of it this way, the gap between the perfect heaven and the fallen earth widened. And so then what God was doing in redemption, which your whole Bible is about in this sense, is he was drawing nearer and nearer he started with people like Noah and his family, then Abraham and his descendants. And then he drew near to Moses at the burning bush and to the whole people of Israel through first the tabernacle tent and then more solidly in the temple. And then the New Testament, he actually comes and dwells among us in this place called Palestine around 2,000 years ago in the person of Jesus Christ. And then after Jesus ascended, he sends his spirit at Pentecost to his early church, both Jew and Gentile. And now he's still with us by his spirit and he's with his people. And now it's people all over the globe. And so when you think about it, redemption, the story is about God's presence. He was close, heaven and earth. But then heaven and earth got widened at the fall and he's been coming closer and closer ever since. And so what will restoration finally look like in the future? Well, it'll be him finally and forever coming as close as possible. With God not only being here, but heaven and earth coming together. Which leads us to the second observation here. For this, we'll look at verse 3. So look down in your Bibles, verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. <laughs> so now for this, we see not only is God present with his people, that's emphasized there, but most importantly, his relationship with them is perfect. And on this, I know we could have included this in the first observation about God's presence, but I think it's helpful for us to separate God's presence and our relationship technically with him. Because when you and I think about the future and what's going on here, we shouldn't just think about God in heaven being here. That's great, but primarily why that's great is because our relationship with God. And I really mean God, the triune, perfect, loving, omnipotent, infinite, Father, Son, Spirit. Our relationship with him then will be perfect forever. We'll experience that. 
And that's why that last part, as you can see in verse 3, is so important. When it says, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Because <laughs> that was always in the Bible the covenantal formula. I will be their God, and they will be my people. Meaning it's always how God has described his relational commitment to his people. And yet now here, finally, in Revelation 21.3, that's happening with perfection. God's not only here, but he and his people have a perfect relationship. So leads us to the third observation on restoration in the future. And notice this is the final thing listed in verse 4, and that's listed last, I think, because it's founded on the first two things. And for this, we'll read verse 4. Look down at your Bibles. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. <laughs> so that's the third observation on restoration in the future. Heaven will be on earth. Our relationship with God will be perfect. And part of all of that will be finally, with a massive sigh of relief, there will no longer be any of the awful results of the fall or sin. Redemption and restoration worked. <laughs> no more tears. No more death, no more mourning or crying or pain, all because those are gone forever. And yet that's not even all verse 4 says, because all that's true and beautiful. But notice how John decides to start verse 4 off with. Because how is all this bad going to go away? Quote, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And I point this out because think about it. When we think about all the bad things being gone, sometimes we just think, well, in one broad stroke, it's all going to just be perfect. And, and in a sense, that's gloriously true and it will happen. But notice specifically how that perfection comes about here in verse 4. Because it comes, it comes about as God intimately removes each sorrow from each of his people's eyes. And this really is a beautiful picture. Because, because what does it really mean? You've probably heard this verse many times. What does it really mean that God will wipe away every tear from your and my eyes? Well, I think if we try our best to really analyze that picture, clearly it means that you and I have a lot of tears now. Right? And those tears represent each sorrow and confusion and pain we have. But what's to come in the future is that God isn't just going to broad stroke remove all sorrow. In a sense, yes, he will. But specifically, and this is so beautiful and amazing, what he's going to do with each of his people's individual tears, with his individual people's sorrows and fears and pains, is that he himself, that's what he says, is going to intimately remove each one of them from each one of us. I would say one last way. God knows each and every one of our tears. He knows the hurt, the sadness, the fears that we really have and that we will have in this life. But he has promised that in the future, what he'll do is he'll not just make that all gone, but specifically, he'll get so involved with each of us, he'll draw near enough to each of us that he will, with his finger, if you will, wipe each one of our tears away. <laughs> And that then is the three observations. It's what's to come. 
heaven will come to earth. God will be in perfect relationship with us as people and he will wipe away every one of our tears from our eyes and all the sorrow and sin in the world will be gone forever. Now, exactly what this new heaven and new earth then will look like, I think the best way to think about it is by knowing that there will be both continuity and discontinuity with what we experience now. Continuity and discontinuity, meaning the Bible is clear that we will have things like bodies. The Bible is clear even in Revelation 22 in the next chapter that, quote, the kings of their earth, of the earth, will bring their glory into the new heavens and new earth, which means that we will have perhaps some of the same human creations and maybe even technologies that we experience now. And we know from other places in the Bible that we will still be human beings like we are now, conscious, conscious, remembering this life and enjoying the goodness of this world. And so that all is continuity. But then we also have to recognize that the Bible has an emphasis on discontinuity with what's to come. And on this, for example, we will have bodies, yes, but as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, and I love this, our bodies now, he says, are like seeds. And Paul says that what's to come with our bodies is more like a plant coming from a seed. And if we know anything about agriculture, which I honestly don't know much, but we do know that a plant doesn't look much like its seed. And the same could be true for anything in the world that we have experienced now. There's continuity, but there could also be a lot of glorious discontinuity where things are way better. For example, just speculating, there could be many more ways to experience the world and experience God. More senses, more dimensions, more foods, different experiences, unspeakable realities, more unique ages, even perhaps more planets and universes and worlds to explore in the future to come. I mean, why not? God hasn't told us. All we do know is that we will be us, human beings, knowing God, living with one another, and so many of the things will be the same, and yet also it's going to be so much better than we can right now ever imagine. Which then leads us quickly to look at a few more places in the book of Revelation in 21 and 22. So to start to bring to an end not only this message but this whole series on the story of redemption, we'll read a few more sections because this is how God ends his, his inspired story and his inspired word. And first, let's read Revelation 21, 5 through 8. And we read this because now this is, if you want to think of it this way, this is the practical part for each of us now in this story. Because all this talk this morning from the Bible, the story and, and the story of the Bible and the universe isn't supposed to just be knowledge that you and I know at all. Instead, let's look at Revelation 21, 5 through 8. God continues, And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage and I will be his God and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. So the point is clear. At the end there, in verse 8, on the one hand, to be clear, if after hearing all this, you, you just live for kind of just what you want, disregard this, don't tr and most importantly, don't trust in Jesus Christ, you won't be in this restoration. It's a sobering truth. God will not save every single person. If people go their own way, 
even against God's good design and his gospel and don't trust in him, the future is not in the Bible restoration, but what we may better call deterioration. Where, where instead of becoming more like you were meant to be, you go in the opposite direction. And so the calling is clear from God's word in verses six and seven. Come and drink this water of life. It does not cost anything. There's no payment, no earning it at all. But still come, trust in Jesus Christ and conquer by believing in and trusting in this conquering Savior. But that then leads us now to read some sections from Revelation 22. And we'll start in verse 17 of chapter 22. So turn me there if you can, just a page to the right. Revelation 22:17, because now this is even closer to the very end of the Bible, and yet the calling is the same. We read verse 17 of chapter 22. The Spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. So this plea to come in the first half of the verse there is, is a calling for Jesus to come back. The Spirit wants Jesus to come back, <laughs> which is fascinating. Even the Spirit of God himself is so longing for Christ's return and this unification of heaven and earth. And the church, the bride, is calling for Jesus to come back. But then once again, as you can see in the second half of that verse, then the calling goes out to anyone hearing this. To anyone who is thirsty for something more than just what this world can give. And their call is to come and to take this water of life without price. Which finally leads us to the last few verses in the Bible. So after verse 17 comes verses 18 and 19 where we're told not to add to or subtract from this book here. Showing that what is written matters infinitely and both adding or taking away is a big deal. But then after that comes the final two verses of the Bible. And I want to read these because now with all of this of the story of redemption and of our universe covered, this is how the Bible ends. Verses 20 and 21. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen, come Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. So that's how God's word concludes. It's fitting. Because first, in verse 20, Jesus testifies, meaning this is all true. And he promises he will come and soon. And our response as the church is, Amen, come Lord Jesus. But that's not it. Because yet, for now, we're still here. And that's why verse 21 fits so well to conclude God's word. Because as we're here now, trusting Jesus, trying to live out this message in holiness and love by the grace of God. As we're trying to spread this message to the world and we're waiting for Jesus' return, what we need now is grace. And the grace of the Lord Jesus is with us. And so that church is the story of the Bible and of our universe. Creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. And the central act in it all was Jesus' coming at Christmas. His living a perfect life, his dying for sins and rising again. And I do pray that throughout this series, each of us came not only to understand the storyline of the Bible a little bit more, although I hope that, hope that happened, but I also hope you really now see that God's plan for this universe and for your life, it is cohesive. It makes sense, it's sure, and it applies to each and every one of us. Because the living God has redeemed, the offer of salvation is available in Jesus Christ. He is restoring his people, and one day he's going to come back to finally and forever restore this universe. 
Which leads us to finally finish this series of message on restoration with one last quote. So stick with me for one more minute. Because one of my favorite books on the new heaven and the new earth and, and on tasting what's really to come is actually C.S. Lewis's book, The Last Battle. And yes, that is a children's book in the Chronicle of Narnia series. But let me tell you, if you haven't read those books ever, or especially even as an adult, I cannot encourage you enough to do so. Because they are certainly not just children's books. They, they are so much more and filled with these beautiful gospel realities. But The Last Battle is the last book in that series. And at the end of the book and of the series, full restoration finally comes. And one of the characters in the story, in glory, says this. And I hope this stirs your heart for the new heaven and new earth and for glory. One of the characters in glory in Lewis's story says this, quote, I have come home at last. This is my real country. I belong here. This is the land I have been looking for all my life, though I never knew it till now. The reason why we love the old Narnia is that it sometimes looked a little like this come further up, further in. And that's exactly the, the, the conclusion to the real life story of redemption. That's similar to what we will all say in the future, brothers and sisters. We'll be home where we belong at last, our real country. And, and forevermore, we'll go further up and further in, experiencing, really experiencing God's goodness and love and creativity and kindness more and more individually and with one another in so many ways. And it'll be what we've always been looking for all of our lives. And that'll be because on that day, each of our tears will be wiped away We'll be perfectly whole without any trace of sin or sorrow and glorified bodies. We'll be living in a universe way greater than we can ever imagine right now and we'll be dwelling in unity and peace with one another and our infinite God forevermore. Amen. Come Lord Jesus. Let's pray.